Medicaid and Medicare loses its memory every January 1st. Even right down to if you've had a leg amputated, they consider it grown back unless it's been recoded. Welcome back. This is Something for the Pain, a podcast produced by Project Echo Idaho, made for Idaho's healthcare professionals working to prevent, treat, and facilitate recovery from opioid and substance use disorders in Valley County and throughout the Gem State. I'm your host, Sam Steffen. Well, the E stands for extensions, looking where we aim to be. CH is for community healthcare, the welfare you and me. On today's episode, episode 12, I'm talking with certified professional coder and certified risk adjustment coder, Deborah Seltzer of the Kootenai Care Network in Northern Idaho to get a bit more insight into what's involved in the coding and billing for patients with substance use disorder. All of that is coming up in today's episode of Something for the Pain. For individuals who receive the diagnosis of a substance use disorder from a healthcare provider, the way that diagnosis is coded can affect not only how the patient is billed by Medicaid or their private insurance, it can also have an impact on future treatment options for that patient. I sat down with Deborah Seltzer, certified professional coder and certified risk adjustment coder at Kootenai Care Network to talk about this very thing. Welcome to the program, Deborah. Um, I was just wondering if you could start out saying your full name and then saying where you work and what it is that you do. Yes, hi. My name is Deborah Seltzer. I work for Kootenai Care Network up in Northern Idaho. I uh, am a certified professional coder and a certified risk adjustment coder. And um, my title here is Risk Adjustment Clinical Coding Reviewer. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what brought you to this line of work? Well, um, I've kind of specialized in risk adjustment coding since uh, I became certified as a coder. Um, I kind of came to the medical coding field as a second phase of my professional life, um, which is actually really common in this field. I started uh, first as a licensed practical nurse, um, worked in acute care nursing in various hospitals in southern Puget Sound, um, and then later as a clinical outpatient nurse. Um, But after I had children, we moved around a lot, um, or really a lot. (laughs) I kind of hung up my uh, stethoscope and settled in to be a full-time mom. Um, but once my kids were grown, it was kind of time to find some new work again, and I decided to just use my healthcare knowledge and put that back to work in a different role. Um, and for folks who may not be familiar, your job title is Certified Professional Coder and Certified Risk Adjustment Coder. Can you just talk a little bit about um, kind of what's involved in becoming certified? Sure. Uh, it's something that there's not a mandatory, um, you have to have a degree of some sort from a college to be a certified professional coder. Um, It is something um, that a lot of people who have been in the role for a long time um, learned as they went along. 
But I think that the changes that came from ICD-9 to the ICD-10, where there was a lot more specificity involved in the coding of the diagnoses, um, it became more and more apparent that uh, people really needed to be certified in um, the roles that that they had so that um, everybody had the same education. So um, there are a lot of places out there that offer different billing certification programs. Um, but your most highly sought after certifications come from AAPC and from AHIMA. Uh, my certifications are through AAPC and their CPC uh, certification is based mostly on outpatient clinical coding and AHIMA's CCS program is based more on inpatient coding because there is a kind of a large difference between the two. So you mentioned a few acronyms there. Uh, The AAPC stands for the American Academy of Professional Coders, and AHIMA is the American Health Information Management Association. You also mentioned the ICD-10. This is like the main coding manual, is that right? It's the the diagnostic Bible, basically. (laughs) Uh, There's the ICD-10-CM, which is uh, for outpatient, and then there's the ICD-10. 10 PCS, which is for inpatient. And just because some of the inpatient diagnoses and procedures have different kinds of codes, so they use slightly different books. But these are still books that are used from the World Health Organization, the same codes that are used around the world. There are different manuals of codes that you use depending on uh, what kind of care has been provided. The ICD-10 is the book that contains your diagnosis codes. So for whatever their actual illness is or their symptom, if they haven't got a actual diagnosis yet, then you use a code for what their symptom is until a diagnosis is found. And then there's CPT codes, which describe the procedures that are performed, which would include your lab and pathology and all of those things. And, and some medications, your HCPCS codes go a lot with your uh, Medicare codes. What the government wants to see, for, they have different codes for like their annual well visits for a Medicare Advantage patient versus you know somebody who's 20 years old. Uh, so there's different codes for different folks for different things all, all the time, but they all work together and just make it. It's just a shorthand so that. Instead of everybody trying to decipher the messy note that a doctor may have written or going through all of the electronic medical records, we can just go to the claims data for the codes that were submitted and they all tell a similar story in the same language and make it a little more concise. So coding is like a, it's a global, this is, these are the same codes in every country, in every state. There, um, yeah, every country, every state, uh, even in the United States, unfortunately, some people uh, outsource their medical records. Um, and so they can be coded in India and the Philippines um, because they all use the same code, too. Um, yeah. And so they may be looking at our medical information, but it's still the same code. Okay. And yeah, so for people who may not be familiar with the roles of uh coder or biller. Can you just kind of walk us through like the process from when a patient comes in to see their care provider to like what happens to those notes as they get passed through to the coder and then to the biller and so on? Sure. Um, Let me describe the two separate roles of coder and biller. They're combined in in a very small office sometimes, but they are usually two distinct roles. 
the generalized kind of description is that the coders and billers, together we translate the medical documentation from what the provider has written in his medical notes um, for what their diagnoses are and what procedures have been performed. And then those are translated into these codes that can be submitted to the insurance companies or your federal government, which is Medicaid and Medicare, for payment. Generally, the notes from the providers go to the coders first. They are the first ones to receive the chart note, and they make that translation from the notes to the codes, the ICD-10 DM codes or the CPT codes or HCPCS codes that describe the procedures, diagnoses, injections, and supplies that were used. All those things are written down in these codes, and then that information is given to the biller so that they can put that on a claim form and get that sent out to the payer, the insurance company, or the federal government, whoever it is that is going to be paying the bill. Once the biller receives that information, they are responsible for sending that claim out and then tracking that claim so that they can record any payment that come back or any denials or questions that come from the insurance companies or changes in modifier codes that were used to make sure that everything is lined up the way that the insurance company wants it to look. Because a code that you can submit to one insurance company, it's the very same code, but if you submit it to a different insurance company, they're going to want a different modifier before they're very willing to pay it. So it kind of comes down to the experience of these people want this, this person wants that. And most coders just kind of have a little logbook of, okay, I'm sending this over to the cross or whoever. And so they need it this way. And then this other company over here needs to have it built a different way. Um, the other thing you have to be careful of is a lot of procedures that are done are bundled, meaning there'll be various steps to a procedure and all those codes end up bundled into like one bulk fee. And you have to be careful that you don't separate those bundled codes and try to build them separately because that can be considered unbundling and it's against the rules because you could have a higher amount paid to you uh, than if you build it as a bundled code, I guess. So you... That's just one of the things you have to look at. Um, generally, one of the reasons that uh, people try to discourage providers from doing a lot of their own coding and billing, um, very small practices, you do that. Um, providers are great for being providers and having received that medical training in school, but nobody really taught them how to code. <laughs> and it's just not part of their curriculum. And so um, I have seen providers that just Google what they think might be a good code and, and then they just usually end up with the short end of the stick on that one. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the additional functions that coding has to the medical process? Sure. Um, the codes that we use, they not only allow the provider to get paid for what the work is that they're doing, they also become part of the patient record, which is like a description of the patient's medical condition and their medical history. But they also tell a story of not just the patient's illnesses or what kind of medical procedures or health trainings that they're having done, but also if they're experiencing any things like unstable housing, limited access to safe drinking water or food, financial difficulties that can affect their ability to obtain their medications, domestic violence, just other life events like that. And so these codes might indicate that they could use some further assistance and may be eligible for a case manager or chronic care management, depending on what their diagnoses are and um, what their insurance coverage provides. And if they don't have that benefit through their insurance, there may be some other locally or federally funded program that could help fill that gap for them. These folks also, after they're 
kind of stripped of their personal identifiers become really important data for the state and federal governments where they can use this information um, to help determine where and how much funding may be needed for social safety net programs. And then they can also help determine where resources may be, should be allocated to investigate the prevalence of certain diseases and study them and hopefully find potential treatments. This data is also how local and federal officials have determined that there has been an increase in substance use disorders and death, which has resulted in the national effort that we have now to turn around the opioid crisis in the country. Um, so, yeah, I do want to kind of get into talking about specifically how coding and billing works for patients who may be receiving treatment for a substance use disorder. I kind of just want to hear you talk about what that process is like. Well, I can kind of skate around some of that a little bit. And my role as a risk adjustment coder is to make sure that the usually chronic diseases, some acute diseases, are recaptured each year so that Medicare or Medicaid understands how sick a person is. And so if I code for a patient who's seen the doctor this year and they have diabetes um, or if they have a substance use disorder and then they're seen again January 1st of 2022... And um, through all of 2022, nobody codes that they have diabetes or that they have a substance use disorder, then Medicare will be like, oh, they don't have these anymore. And so they've been presumed to be healthy in those two areas. And that affects the amount of funding that Medicare and Medicaid will pay, whether it's another third-party payer insurance for like a Medicare Advantage plan or just what they plan to have available to care for that patient. So that's my role, and not in just the daily making sure those bills get paid, you know, sent out correctly so that the providers get paid. My role is to making sure that the payers know this is the disease acuity of this patient. This is what they look like, like on a report card every year for their their disease burden. How sick are they? so that it can be planned for. And that comes down to also including like a substance use disorder, whether they're dealing with an opioid addiction or any of the other substances that it could be. If we aren't capturing those on a yearly basis, then the payer does not know because Medicaid and Medicare loses its memory every January 1st. Even right down to if you've had a leg amputated, they consider it grown back unless it's been recoded. Now, on the flip side of that, the payers are looking at the claims that are coming into them. And so if they are seeing treatment for a substance use disorder, or if they are seeing a lot of opioid prescriptions coming through that they're paying for, they are going to send out a report to us and that says, maybe this patient needs to be diagnosed with a substance use disorder. The payer's role is to be prepared to meet the financial responsibilities of providing care to the beneficiary in an attempt to make sure that all possible diagnoses are covered and planned for, they can make assumptions about information they receive that may increase a patient's risk score, but it is the provider's responsibility to make sure that a diagnosis is appropriate for a patient and they make that decision. And unfortunately, how ill they are also means how much money will the payer get to provide the care to that patient. 
So it is a careful balance of what a payer may expect versus what a provider feels is a true representation of their patient's diagnosis. And then if the payer can provide that care at a lower price than what CMS has paid to them in premiums for a patient, making sure that the patient's having quality care but have money left over, then that ends up as like shared savings for the payer and sometimes for the providers that are contracted with them. And so that's a good way for them to reinforce you're doing a good job of taking care of this patient. So the diagnosis of a substance use disorder potentially means that the patient is at a higher risk level. But at the same time, you have to be really careful that you're not saying, oh, I guess we can say this patient has a substance use disorder when actually they're being treated long-term with an opioid prescription, but they're on a pain contract, um, they're taking their drug screens, they're not coming up short in their medications, they're having no problems functioning in their daily life, not creating problems in their personal relationships. There's nothing there that says they are misusing their medications that they are using them just to deal with whatever it is that's causing them this chronic pain. And based on that, they are, you know, in line and doing what they're supposed to do. But if a payer comes along and says, well, hey, you know, they're on these chronic medications, we think that they should be considered having a substance use disorder. And if the provider who is under a lot of pressure as it is, when it comes to prescribing opioids and the regulations that they must meet and, and you know, constant scrutiny about quantity of opioids that are being prescribed and the age of the patient, potential interactions, all those things that are watched. Now they have to make the decision about whether their patient has a substance use disorder or if they are using them carefully as directed for a legitimate diagnosis. Unfortunately, the clinical language that a provider may use in documentation to say that a patient is dependent on opioids to manage their pain and maintain their activities of daily living is interpreted differently in ICD-10. Opioid dependence in ICD-10, which is usually like code F11.10 or F11.20, represents a patient that has a substance use disorder, which is considered a behavioral health diagnosis. If a provider wants to indicate that the patient is on long-term current opiate analgesic, that they are not abusing or psychologically dependent on the medication, then they should be using, uh, coding it as Z79.891, which is long-term use, current use of an opiate analgesic. Whichever code the provider selects needs to be backed up to documentation that they record in the chart. So if we have a code come in on the bottom of the assessment of the, of the doctor's note that says that the patient has an opioid use disorder, they are dependent on opioids, there's nothing in the chart note that backs up that statement. I can't code that. I need the documentation. If the provider is like, oh, yeah, you know, I totally meant to write write down the stuff that would support that and he does an addendum and does give you the legitimate stuff that you need to be able to code that and then that's great we'll send it in and do it so it sounds like coding of a substance use disorder is dependent upon the doctor's ability to document their assessments it seems like this could also have lasting implications on the patient these kinds of diagnoses come with a lot of social stigma still and they do come with an added responsibility in assigning the diagnosis correctly to a patient, a substance use disorder can impact 
future decisions in your health care may impact life insurance premiums or even cause problems with employment, depending on the type of job you have. Just like maybe having prior heart attacks would make someone think twice about whether or not they want to uh, offer you life insurance. Uh, somebody who has a substance use disorder, it may make them think twice about whether they want to give you life insurance too. You're at a higher risk. And if that label has been put on you falsely, that's a big burden to carry through your life. Now, the Affordable Care Act made it possible that that the insurances that are available on that marketplace have to offer you insurance without considering your pre-existing conditions. But that does not necessarily apply to whether someone will let you buy life insurance without a higher premium, if at all. So you need to be careful what you're you're agreeing to about a patient. And if you're going to say that that's what they have, then we need to make sure that the documentation is there in the chart that backs that up. Yeah, no, that's that's really helpful. Thanks for explaining that. You mentioned some of the criteria that would go along with uh, diagnosing somebody with a substance use disorder. If it's not too much, would you mind kind of just walking us through that? According to the American Psychiatric Association, um, these are the following diagnostic criteria for an opioid use disorder. And that would be a problematic pattern of opioid use leading to a clinically significant impairment or distress as manifested by at least two of the following. For a diagnosis level of mild or four to six of the criteria for a moderate to severe level of the following occurring within a 12-month period. Okay, so the following is a list of 11 different criteria. The list of the things are one, opioids are often taken in larger amounts or over a longer period than was intended. Two, there is a persistent desire or unsuccessful efforts to cut down or control opioid use. Three, a great deal of time is spent in activities necessary to tame the opioid or recover from its effects. Four, a craving or strong desire or urge to use opioids. Five, recurrent opioid use despite having a persistent or recurrent social or interpersonal problems caused by the effects of the opioids. Six, Continued opioid use despite knowledge of having a persistent or recurrent physical or psychological problem that is likely to have been caused by the substance. Seven. Important social, occupational, or recreational activities are given up or reduced because of opioid use. Eight. Recurrent opioid use in situations which is physically hazardous. Nine. Continued opioid use despite knowledge of having a persistent or recurrent psychological problem that is likely to have been caused by the substance. Ten. And tolerance is defined by either the following, a need for markedly increased amounts of opioids to achieve intoxication or the desired effect or a markedly diminished effect with continued use of the same amount of an opioid. And on this one, there is a notation here that the criterion is not considered to be met if they are taking the opioid solely under the appropriate medical supervision. So a patient who is having chronic pain may eventually experience that the dose of medication they've been on is not relieving their pain as well anymore, but that does not necessarily qualify them for a substance use disorder. That just means it's not being as effective anymore because of long-term use. 
One of the other criteria is uh, withdrawal as manifested by either of the following, which is a characteristic opioid withdrawal syndrome. And opioids are a closely related substance are taken to relieve or avoid withdrawal symptoms. And again, for this withdrawal um, criteria, it is also not considered to be met for individuals who are taking opioids solely, solely under appropriate medical supervision. Um, anybody who has been put on them long-term for a chronic pain disorder will experience uh, withdrawal symptoms if that medication is withheld from them. Um, that does not mean that they have a substance use disorder. It just means that their body was used to the medication and now it's gone. Okay. But, so those are, those are the main criterion. And, and again, you said out of that list you just read, you could have any two of those. Any two of them for a mild substance use disorder, four to six for a moderate to severe substance use disorder occurring within a 12-month period. Okay. And uh, you also mentioned in the notes you sent the nuances of coding for a substance use disorder as opposed to like diagnosing for it. Um, uh-huh. And I thought those were kind of interesting as well. Um, could, would you mind just w- kind of going through those examples also? Yeah, no, I don't mind at all. Um, I'm looking real quick through my notes because I want, here it is. I, I, I wanted to read them correctly to you because even when I code for it, I still look at the guidance because you just got to make sure you're getting it right. So when you're coding for a substance use disorder or an opioid use disorder, there are rules that guide which code you choose. And according to the guidelines in the ICD-10 book, it says when the provider documentation refers to use, abuse, and dependence of the same substance, whether that's alcohol, opioid, cannabis, whatever the substance is, only one code should be assigned to identify the pattern of use based on the following hierarchy. So if both use and abuse are documented, you only assign the code for abuse. If both abuse and dependence are documented, you assign only a code for dependence. If use, abuse, and dependence are all documented, you only code for dependence. Kind of like that's the trump card. Um, And if both use and dependence are documented, then you still only assign the code for dependence. So if dependence is in there, that's the one you would code. Um, just wouldn't make sense to code all three. If they're dependent, of course, they're using and abusing. Right. And so, so that also makes me wonder about kind of the distinctions between uh, like use and abuse and dependence. Um, are those things mm-hmm. that are being determined by the, by the physician or are those... Um, it, those should be being determined by the physician, by that provider, um, okay. and based on those criterion that we just went over that um, would be a difference between a patient using it carefully as directed and a patient abusing it. Gotcha. Um, and then there will be some medical dependence if they're legitimately using them, you know, in the safe way the doctor has prescribed them. Um, it's still, a, you know physiological process where their body is going to become dependent on them, but that doesn't mean that, you know, they're psychologically dependent on them and, and they can't wait to score their next fix. It, it, they're just trying to seek some relief for their chronic pain condition. Okay. Thank you. That's, that's really helpful. Sure. Um, well, Deborah, is there anything else you want to share or anything that you feel like maybe I should have asked that I didn't? 
I just want to make it clear that um, no coder, including myself, wants to second guess the provider. That's, that's not our job. So when I say, you know, do your documentation isn't supporting this, I'm not saying you're not doing your job correctly. This is not what this patient has. I'm saying that if this is what you filled the diagnosis is for the patient, I just need you to put it in the chart because a lot of providers, they chart in their head and we try to get them to chart in ink. You know, they know what's going on with their patient, but they fail to put it down on paper or in the electronic medical record. And so that's where you you just run into that kind of translation problems. Like, I know you're probably thinking something, but it's not here in the chart to support it. And we can't, we can query a provider to get that information from them, but we can't lead them to a, a with a leading query to say, you know, if, if this is the diagnosis you want to put, this is what you need to say. We, it, it's very regulated and we just have to say, this is what the chart indicates. This is what you wrote. These are some choices. Do any of these apply? And they can figure out then on their own that, oh, wow, look at that. I didn't quite get the documentation down that I needed to, and then they can cover their bases. But yeah, not, we're not we're not out to say, oh, I know how to care for your patient better, and you didn't do that right. <laughs> I just want, I want that really clear that, um, that all we're doing is trying to make sure that that record reflects what the doctor is trying to say. Um, just one other question uh, that that made me kind of sure. think of is, in Idaho, uh, where you know, uh, which is defined as a largely like frontier state. Uh, there's a lot of rural communities, rural health clinics. Right. Um, you mentioned a situation where the, where a lot of times it may be a, a provider who is actually doing the, their own coding. Do you think that's like pretty typical of Idaho's healthcare? I think in some of the very rural areas, you may find practices that are that small. Um, I know uh, a lot of providers are joining um, more of the larger health systems or accountable care organizations, um, which gives them more resources. But yeah, you may find um, your your loan <laughs> loan functioning uh, provider out there who's trying to do it all. And um, I think it's just really important that they. Um, if they're going to take on that responsibility, because it is a legal responsibility on top of the uh, medical care that they're providing, it's legal responsibility that they're billing properly and following the regulations. And so if they're going to do that, um, they probably should make sure that if they're not going to pay someone, that then they should spend the money to get certified themselves so that they are getting not only submitting the bills legally and lawfully the way they should be, but they're also getting them done correctly so that they're getting the reimbursement for the work that they're doing. Um, if they're not, if they're not um, filing them correctly, they could be leaving a lot of the care that they do on the table, not getting paid for. So it, it's a benefit to, to them to do them. And it's not a huge investment. So if, if they don't want to hire somebody, they should probably get certified. <laughs> Well, great. Uh, well, Deborah, I really want to thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk with me today. This has been a really great conversation. No problem. Thank you for having some interest in what we do.
Badkin was an interview with Deborah Seltzer, certified professional coder and certified risk adjustment coder at Kootenai Care Network. More information about the diagnostic manuals and the organizations and services that Deborah mentioned are available in our podcast show notes on our website, www.uidaho.edu slash echo hyphen podcast. If you're interested in joining our free live echo sessions to receive continuing education credit, learn best practices, ask a question, or grow your community, please visit our website at www.uidaho.edu echo, where you can register to attend, sign up to receive announcements, donate, and find out more information about our programs. Something for the Pain is brought to you by Echo Idaho, supported by the Whammy Medical Education Program and the University of Idaho, and is made possible by V-Corp, the Valley County Opioid Response Project. There's an epidemic going around called OPIOID. In the gym state, the overdose rate is on the RISE. To change it will take community-wide EFFORT. That's why they started VCOR, the VCORP. Well, I'm glad to know in Idaho there's the VCORP. A Valley County INITIATIVE. A community wide effort to reduce opioid OD through prevention, education, treatment, and recovery. We here at Echo also want to hear your feedback. We welcome your questions, comments, and suggestions and invite you to email us at echoidaho at uidaho.edu. And don't forget to subscribe to Something for the Pain using your podcast app. And if you have a moment, write us a review. Something for the Pain is made possible by grant number GA1RH39585 from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA. Its contents are solely the responsibility of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of CDH or HRSA. Well, I'm glad to know that Idaho's got the VCORP Valley County INITIATIVE A community-wide effort to reduce opioid OD Through prevention, education, treatment, and recovery We'd also like to thank all of our listeners without whom none of this would be possible. Without you, we'd just be talking to ourselves. Michelle Smith is the Echo Idaho Program Director. Katie Palmer is our Assistant Director. Our Marketing Manager is Lindsay Lotus. Our Program Manager is Lindsay Winters-Jewell. Our Grant Services Manager is Kayla Blades. Jessica Whitlock is our Continuing Education Coordinator. Our Program Coordinators are Jocelyn Elvira, Laura Jackson, and Sam Steffen. Who's next to last in the ruralest of places where the resources are scarce? They're calling Echo Idaho in answer to our prayers. Echo Idaho, sign up for our free sessions. There's a handful every month. Echo.